Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is the esteemed Anthony Dockerell. The Centre... For your information, is concerned with three key aspects of the ongoing technology-driven transition in news media. They are press freedom and regulation, best practice in journalism, and new business models. And before we talk to our special guest this week, I firstly want to mention a major event uh, in this week's news, and that is the setting up of a new institute to support journalism and help strengthen the standing, and most importantly, the trust of the work of journalists in this country. Businesswoman and arts patron Judith Nielsen has announced she will donate at least $100 million, that's right, $100 million, to setting up the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. And I think that is by uh, by not just the largest single donation to journalism, but I think it's one of the uh, largest, if not the largest, philanthropic donations ever made in this country. Uh, Nielsen said this week in regards to her new institute that, and I quote, journalism doesn't just need critics, it needs champions, people and institutions with the resources to help educate, encourage and connect journalists and their audience in pursuit of excellence. And as someone who champions the work and craft of journalism, all I can say is I wish the Institute the very, very best of success. And keeping this latter subject in mind, this week's guest is someone who, among many other things, supports and trolls the world examining startups in journalism. She's working at why they work, why they don't work, and what can be done to help them succeed. Anna Schifrin from Columbia University, New York, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Great pleasure. So by way of a little bit more background, Anya is the Director of of the Technology, Media and Communications Specialization at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. Uh, She is a former business journalist with a wide variety of postings. We might talk about that briefly because you did go to a lot of great places. I did. I was lucky. Yes, indeed. You you make your luck, I think. And, (laughs) And she is also the author of several Great books about journalism. We're going to mention a couple of those as we go along, including uh, this newish work on a global investigative journalism, um, global muckraking, um, uh, which is I, I would strongly recommend. I've already read a few pages of it, and it's excellent. Thank you. And But for the purpose of tonight, or just as we start tonight's discussion, um, she is a key author of a report called Publishing for Peanuts. And the latest version of Publishing for Peanuts was given its first airing in Sydney the other night. Uh, So it's fresh, it's new, and dare I say, it's a little bit sobering because it's about media startups and what's working and what's not. And you tell us what you found. Sure, absolutely. So in um, 2015, along with J.J. Robinson and Kristen Grennan, uh, I co-authored a report called Publishing for Peanuts. And what we wanted to look at was 
the startups around the world that were trying to deliver quality news to people who are often undercovered or maybe off the beaten track a little bit. So we looked at uh, startups in places like the Maldives and in Nepal and in India and in Africa, but we also included uh, more familiar titles, for example, The Conversation here in Australia and Crikey. And we um, interviewed those outlets to find out why they started and how they were doing and sort of what they saw their prospects to be. And the main thing that we took away from that was that there was just all this incredible energy, Mm. often young people or older people who, for some reason or other, left their established job and felt that they could change the world by doing sort of wonderful accountability reporting or human rights reporting. This is in 2015. This was in 2015. And sometimes there was some political thing that happened, like the anti-corruption movement in India, which inspired the people who started India Spend, or the protests in Tunisia and Egypt, which got people thinking about new kinds of journalism, or sometimes the government tinkered with some kind of law and that made it easier all of a sudden or made it more difficult. Like you can't have, you know, this kind of technology, so you've got to do something else. So they were super inventive and they were all um, very inspired and they really wanted to just commit journalism. They weren't interested in making money. They were interested in doing investigative reporting. So so that was the story and we did a huge taxonomy of kind of the different innovations we saw, how people were surviving, what people were writing about, what inspired them, how they got their funding. And um, that's available online if you just Google Publishing for Peanuts, J.J. Robinson or Schifrin. Schifrin. I I read it. It's terrific. And you're right. You did capture this essence of the times in a way, you know, this very, very, a lot of energy, a lot of hope. Yeah. And so this time around, you've gone back. Right. So we decided to go back three years later and see how they were, how were they doing. And we found lots to be inspired about, which I can explain. But mainly the main thing was nobody was making any money. Um, so what was inspiring were people were still really, really dedicated to their mission. Nobody has an exit strategy. Nobody wants to shut down. They really believe that what they're doing is incredibly important. And many of them are in a climate that has has just gotten worse and worse and worse. So you've mm. seen in the United States how Donald Trump is constantly attacking the media. Mm-hmm. And so this is true for many of the other journalists around yeah. the world, for example, in South Africa uh, or in many parts of Eastern Europe. So the journalists are working against incredible odds and they're breaking remarkable news like the Gupta scandal, which really brought down Zuma in South Africa. Investigate West in Seattle is breaking stories about the, the some, I think it was the old age homes or the foster care. So really great stories and and really good reporting, but it simply wasn't translating into Mm. financial survival. So one of the things that comes out very strongly in this latest edition, and I I guess in a sense the first, but this one it really comes home to roost, is that point that the journalism startups seem to be pretty crappy at the business side of things. Uh, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised by that, really. You know, they're journalists, they're Mm -hmm. not, you know business people. But uh, it strikes me that, you know, if these things are ever going to take up and have scale, and Mm -hmm. and, some of them probably never will have scale, but you'd want them to survive. How do you, what thoughts do you have about correcting this gap? This, you know, do they all have to go off and 
Well, so I think part of the pro- I mean, it's how, I don't I don't want to blame the victim. No. So definitely it's perfectly true that many of these were founded by people that really were just thinking about what they wanted to produce and they weren't necessarily looking at the audience to see if there was demand. So it was sort of a build build it and they will come. If I just do the most incredible investigative reporting and I mm. you know speak truth to power, surely the market will support me. Surely so they'll see so, that yeah. it's needed. So right. in that sense that that's a little naive, but also just the world has gotten harder. So mm. there is much less advertising revenue than there yeah. was. And yeah. Investigate West in Seattle really thought, well, we can syndicate our great co- uh, copy around the local newspapers. Well, guess what? There aren't that many local newspapers anymore, <laughs> right. and they don't have any money. Uh, other things that people have tried turned out to just be so much work that they almost weren't worth it, like events, for example. Right. Lots of people thought they would do events or that they would do consulting or they would do teaching, and that brought in less revenue than they expected. And sucked up a lot of time and they exactly. couldn't do the thing they actually wanted to do. Yeah, not worth the calories, as someone, as someone said to me. Yeah, Is this uh, a sort of a window on a kind of a bigger issue, which we maybe we can get, talk a little bit mm-hmm. about later on, but that this sort of a sense that what ails journalism is, you know, what can fix journalism is just more journalism. And, and I, I'm sure both you and I and many of our listeners would love to believe that. But maybe the it's not that straightforward. Yeah. Well, we were we were talking about that a little bit before. That journalists believe so much in journalism that they do tend to feel it's the cure for all of society's ailments. Which, by the way, everybody thinks, right? If you've got sure. a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So um, yeah. journalists aren't alone in in that assumption. And I think that in the olden days, when there was less information, information maybe had more power than today. And so it's much harder to get attention. Again, as we were talking about. It's almost a demand side problem at this point, not a supply side problem. So there are, of course, stories that aren't getting covered. And there's, of course, areas that aren't getting covered. And local news is is a great example. But there's also lots of fantastic investigative reporting, accountability reporting that just isn't getting the response that it should. And I would give you as Exhibit A, the incredible journalism about Donald Trump. Yeah. His corruption, his icky relationships, his yeah. tax avoidance yep. has been documented over and over again in the United States. And yet to his base, it's just not getting through. Which, of course, goes to the question of the demand side again, but audience, really. Um, you know, how are, we, are we seeing, in a sense, and Trump's such a great exemplar of this, is that are we, as you say, that to his base, Donald Trump could walk naked down the the more in Washington, and he mm-hmm. would still be a hero. How, how does journalism deal with fix that? that? Yeah, well, uh, as Trump himself said, I could shoot someone Fifth Avenue yeah. and I wouldn't lose my base, um, unfortunately. I think to a large extent, um, journalists can't fix it, but I also think it's important to keep doing what, what journalism does at its best, mm. which is I do think it's really important for journalists still to sort of stick to standards of balance mm-hmm. and of accuracy and of writing about things even when they're not popular, because maybe someday people will still want that again. And for those and for those that do want it, it's got to be there. So I think a lot of what's going on in the U.S. right now is it's almost just sort of chipping away 
way. And we keep mm. hoping that if the journalists keep doing a good job exposing what they're supposed to expose, then at some point it, it may tip in some way. But I agree that the world is so fragmented now that it's really hard to reach those people that are in an, in another echo chamber. Yeah, because uh, the numbers are extraordinary. Uh, documented by the likes of the Wash Post and the New York Times. I mean, in the couple of years that Trump's been in power, uh, he's been caught out something like 5,000 lies. Yeah. So it, we sort of grew up with a different time when you'd think that one lie was enough. Well, yeah. One or two, maybe, yeah. you know, whatever. And now we're talking about thousands of lies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there, flipping this back, I don't want to get down on journalism at all, but is yeah. there an issue in journalism? that this exposes to? Is it something wrong with the model? Is it something that we, that people, certain people, a group of people, a large group of people don't listen to journalists anymore? Well, I think that to the Trump supporter, he's speaking a larger truth. Yes. So it doesn't necessarily matter uh, to them right. if he's caught on, you know, they might say, well, it's a technicality. Yeah. Because the main, okay, so he's not a details guy. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, of course, there's the problem that when you tell people something over and over again, I guess after a while they started sort of discounted and, and stop hearing, I think. Mm. It's also probably part yeah, of what's happened. Yeah, it's the happened. diminishing power of lying. Yeah, and you know, again, not to harp on the U.S., but obviously all of us are very preoccupied about Donald Trump right now. Mm. Rupert Murdoch and Fox News has had a huge impact on our politics, and the American Economic Review last year published sort of the definitive paper on the effect of Fox News, and I think it's correlated actually with a 3 to 4% percent, uh, gain for Republicans in the elections. Wow. And they took into account the position on the on the dial because a lot of people just watch what's closest. So I think we really know that Fox had an enormous impact on the um, on the voting and the support for the Republicans now in the United States. So the business model of Fox isn't journalism. I think that they've evolved a lot since they were started, and I would say that they're certainly a sort of political propaganda arm at this point. Mm. We saw Sean Hannity mm. on stage with Trump right before the midterms. Mm. Uh, so I, so that's – Yochai Benkler has a new book out which talks a lot about the sort of role of right-wing U.S. propaganda mm. um, as being maybe even more important than the sort of Russian disinformation before the elections. So it's a scary, interesting time. And and those sort of media entrepreneurs that we talked about in publishing for Peanuts and its sequel are sort of brave fighters on the coalface, mm. but they're small. And I'm not sure how much of an impact they're going to have, although it's obviously important to keep to keep doing that work. Yes. No, no. And absolutely. Just part of this yeah. equation, of course, is um, what's called fake news. hate the term myself. I'm sure you do too. Misinformation, disinformation. Not quite as sexy, but certainly probably more accurate. But um, and that has been weaponized by social media platforms. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not that people stopped starting. We didn't invent propaganda, fake news. Call it what you like. Uh, you know, ten years ago, mm -hmm. it's just that it's now spreads rapidly. Bots can exploit the inherent qualities of the likes of Facebook. What can be done about that? I mean, to what extent do you see? Facebook in and in Google and other social media platforms playing a part in the problem that's been created and also taking responsibility for fixing it. 
Yeah. So um, I recently published an article about efforts to fight disinformation and propaganda from the 1930s. So it's definitely a problem that's been around for a long time. And academics got very, very interested in the whole question of media trust and propaganda, really after World War One and in the run-up to World War II and after World War II, because they wanted to understand how could people be convinced, for example, mm. to support the Nazis. So the research has been happening for decades, and it's really, really hard to know what persuades people to believe something that's not true or propaganda. Um, and we don't know whether it's sort of journalism behavior and norms, whether it's sort of prejudices that people bring. And not knowing what causes the persuasion makes it really difficult to fix it. Yeah. However, uh, it's it's certainly reasonable to worry that the scale of the disinformation and the micro-targeting that we're seeing from Facebook has has raised this to a whole new whole new game. And unfortunately, Facebook is actually sitting on vast amounts of data about who they targeted that they won't release. Right. And without that, it's 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 difficult to establish some of the causality. They said earlier this year that they would release data to some academics and they got foundation funding to do that, but they also said they wouldn't release it to anybody who wanted to study what happened in 2016. Mm. So What was the rationale for that? Well, I think it just would make them look bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just don't want to. But yeah, yeah. But if you talk to someone like Yohai Benkler or Phil Howard at Oxford, all the people that are studying this stuff, you know, they'll tell you that data is essential, but they're all putting in to do research. So we so we don't know exactly what happened in 2016. Um, and that that's a, that's a problem, not establishing the causality. So what we're seeing around the world are a whole range of different fixes, which I think are probably mostly Band-Aid fixes, but we have to try just in case. So people who believe in media literacy are saying that's, that's what we need to do. We need to teach consumers and children to be more savvy, more skeptical, to understand what they're seeing. Journalists are saying we need more, better quality journalism because that will sort of drive out the bad stuff. Governments are saying let's regulate. And some of that regulation is probably fairly harmless. Like in the U.S., we have a bill that probably won't get passed for disclosure of online political advertising. And then some of that regulation is actually pretty terrible for free speech, such as the stuff that Korea did um, in Ecuador mm. or which, you know, Malaysia put in before. And then there's all before before the transition. And mm -hmm. then and they're not enforcing now. And then there's all the sort of tech fixes yeah. like let's have good bots or let's change the algorithm or, or let's, let's tweak have, this. Yeah. Transparency, greater transparency. Yep. So so we've got a lot of different solutions out there. And I bet if I had to predict, that's what's going to happen. We're going to keep seeing piecemeal solutions. Mm being enacted all over the world. And I don't know if it's going to solve the problem. Probably mm. not. In Pro fact. Well, Maybe yeah. people will tune it out. I mean, when I talked to Facebook right after this whole thing started, they said, oh, well, people learn to tune it out. Really? Let's not worry. But how many people have died in, you know, Myanmar yeah. in India as a result of rumors? Yeah, so I think, I think just sitting around and hoping people learn to tune it out is actually pretty risky. No, because I think the other aspect of this, which I think is, goes to a bit what you were saying in the first part there, was that increasingly people are, are receiving and interacting and using news on an emotional level. 
Right, and and that's one of the things that has happened. Of course, we have more visual content now that works on a more emotional level than having to sit down and read something. So we kind of have this. So we have this perfect tools. It seems to me for manipulating our emotional states. So we have examples of you know a mob uh, being told on WhatsApp that there's two people in this cell are child abductors in Mexico. They get pulled out of the cell and burnt alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's sort of no limit as well. Zainab Tufek, she talks about Facebook knows you so well, they can figure out if you're manic depressive when you're going to have a manic phase and sell you a plane ticket to Las Vegas. And uh, another book I've just started reading about the surveillance economy by Shana Zobikoff talks about how because everybody now wants everything tailored, that is giving the tech platforms far more data than before. If you went and right. just bought a record, you just bought a record. Right. That's all they knew. But now they know everything about you and your habits, and they can start doing the shaping. Yeah. So it's all a little bit terrifying, I have to say. It is say. a bit scary. I mean, yeah. going back to the startups, uh, some of the startups you uh, looked at would have been deeply affected by changes to the Facebook algorithm, yeah? That's right. And that's what many of them talked about. So when Facebook, I guess it was late 2017, mm. started um, tweaking the news feed in a bunch of pilot countries, I think it was Cambodia and I think it was Serbia and Bolivia, mm -hmm. overnight various news outlets um, saw their traffic from Facebook sort of collapse. So I think I think even if we're going to be sort of in Facebook's hands for the, you know, for eternity, I think <laughs> transparency and predictability are going are, are really important. And they do have a responsibility to provide that. Do you think the, one of the answers to what ails journalism is to tax Google, Facebook, etc., um, to make them pay? Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a great idea, and I think there's growing enthusiasm. How, how are you going to do that? <laughs> well, well, hopefully right now they're feeling a little bit guilty about the fact that they got all the ad revenues, so it would be wonderful to see them put some money aside to support journalism and then find um, and then put together a sort of reliable, bipartisan, international group that could help allocate that funding. I would love to see that. I think that's a, yeah. a great campaign for us for the future. Well, you've you've been talking a little bit uh, in in your visit in Australia about you know some big ideas. One one of the things I know you love is the a big idea was the International Consortium of uh, Investigative Journalists. Uh, we, we were lucky enough to have Gerald Rowe on the show recently. What does the ICIJ, for instance, teach us about uh, the future of journalism? Well, it'll be interesting to see um, how long they're techniques and innovations will be effective. But I think one of the things that they've shown is that cross-border reporting mm -hmm. and timing of uh, news release can still have impact even in a very, very crowded world with a lot of information. Mm. And then as someone who teaches, I love what they've done to teach and coach and mentor journalists around the world. Mm. That's been by bringing together hundreds and hundreds of people and working on real stories together and doing that across sort of ages and across nationality. They've also done a tremendous amount of teaching and community building. So I, I, I really, really admire the work that the You, you actually teach does. a course on... Uh... On well, I was teaching a course on Panama Papers. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I was teaching that with a lawyer. Um, got the Panamanians very angry. They were muttering <laughs> about suing Colombia. But yeah, we looked at sort of the power of journalism and tax avoidance. That's definitely right. an interest of mine. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, you've been here a little while. Is there anything that's uh, leapt out 
while you've been in the Australian media space. I'm hoping that you'll say yes. But anyway, uh, is there anything that's leapt out or uh, or sure. kind of almost a way of thinking that maybe you've found? In the, yeah, in well, I've always really um, admired and been interested in uh, Australia, sort of newspaper media culture. Um, there are, you know, wonderful memoirs by Australian journalists. Mm. And you get, you get you guys gave the world Rupert Murdoch, yeah. which isn't a great thing. But you we do have you. a kind of I know we took it. But you have a wonder you have a wonderful like feisty tabloid culture, which I always enjoy, you know, the croc stories and stuff mm. like that. And then you've also got a tremendous culture of um, innovation as well. The conversation is a global brand, which is from Australia. You've got a good public service broadcaster, which yeah. a lot of people don't have and is something to admire. Um, and you certainly got, you know, first rate uh, academic departments. So I think there's a lot here. Uh, and I and perhaps I don't want to say you're isolated because I, I'm always amazed by how closely Australians follow uh, international events. But I think having a, a sort of sense of national identity and a strong domestic market has probably helped contribute mm. to that That's sort of yeah, lively okay. and um, kind of self-sufficient media culture that I think you have here. Well, we're certainly spending a lot of time uh, looking at uh, your president at the moment. Um, but yes, no, I, I think you're right. I, I look, I, I, I think there much more needs to be done in terms of media diversity in this country. Uh, as I've mentioned uh, before, off air, you know, I, I personally wake up in fear that you know one day there will be, if you like, broadly uh, Rupert's Rupert Murdoch's. Uh, organization broadly on the right and the national broadcaster broadly on the left and nothing much in the middle. Mm. And so I spent quite a lot of my time thinking about how we encourage the middle. But there are no, as you say, there's not too many easy solutions. Are you sure that your broadcaster isn't the middle? Well, it might be, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's a point of a lot of contention. And it may yeah. well be the middle. But even so, I'd still like to have more, you know, more than just the ABC and uh, Rupert Murdoch. Absolutely. You it's know, all about diversity It's and about plurality. diversity and plurality. And, uh, and also, um, I don't know if you can rely on a government, um, as we do with the ABC, to support um, journalism. You know, we've we've seen some recent examples of a very feisty relationship between the government and the ABC management. So, yeah. you know, I'd I'd like to see independent funding. Um, and that that's another thing that you touched on in uh, publishing for Peanuts, of course, was that a lot of the uh, startups that had a kind of a longer tail, longer runway, were kind of not for profits. Do you mm -hmm. see that as a one of the answers to what ails journalism? Yeah, and I think my shift, my thinking has completely shifted on this. I think that 10 years ago, I thought, oh, you know, these philanthropists need to keep their hands off the media. They've got, in too many cases, they have agendas. Yeah. You know, Bill Gates just wants people to write about malaria. And um, my thinking has completely shifted on that because it's a desperate situation financially and people need um, and, and help is, is welcome at this point. I have seen, I guess, in Australia, you've got Maury Schwartz. Yep. who has started a number of outlets. And I believe that Graham Wood as well has yeah. supported environmental yep. journalism. And he's helped with the side of the Guardian here. Yep. Oh, yeah. Good. So I think that um, I think we now need those philanthropies and those foundations. And it's more about sort of putting in the mechanisms so that hopefully they can at least fund journalism 
that's that's fairly balanced and you know and accurate and evidence based and and truth based mm. as well. Here's the truth. Yeah, we um, love the truth. <laughs> you're listening to the Fourth Estate, where journalists talk journalism, and our guest is Anya Schifrin, who an ex an expert. I'm going to call you an expert. I'm going to own that word. An expert on media startups, uh, global investigative journalism, and and several other things. And by way of close observation, Donald Trump and the news media, who is a product of your city. How does that make you feel? Uh, well, I guess in New York, we have such a snotty view, which is we know Donald Trump. He came from us. We know what a shyster, what a crook, what a con man he is. And how is it that the rest of the country fell for him? We've been watching him mm. for decades, and we just can't believe that That's people fell for him. You're all intellectual liberals. Well, also, it? we watched him lie, too. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, even stupid things like he promised to save the facade of a department building, and then he tore it down in the middle of the night. I mean, the guy has just been lying for decades. Yeah. Uh, so we feel sorry that the other people well, fell so he's for the, it. He's the guy that New York couldn't tame. So why do you expect the Midwest to do it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, anyway. <It's> a village. <laughs> <laughs> so... What's your impact? Just going back to this question of Trump, though, because we've seen recently some very uh, uh, even more ugly. I mean, every day is a surprise, really. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this whole thing with the White House uh, press corps and what have you. Do you what is I guess what, what I'm interested in is, do you think that the time has come for the press corps in somewhere like the White House needs to get more bolshy? Is it and should it stop amplifying what Trump says? Yeah. So the time is long past for our White House press corps and uh, journalists in the U.S. to stand up against Trump. But the problem is at this point, we're so the press corps so fragmented that there isn't even consensus mm. um, on on what on on Trump and plenty of people who really barely have an experience and they are just pro, you know, extremely ideological are now getting press passes and being included. Mm. So I would say that unanimity is is very unlikely. In this um, new book, Network Pro Propaganda by Yochai Benkler, which I'm reading, he talks about how because the of certain sort of journalistic norms and practices in the U.S., made everyone more vulnerable to being sort of hacked by the right wing. So, for example, um, the love of scoops and the mm. need for balance meant that in the run-up to the elections, the journalists ended up giving far more time to some of the Trump allegations against Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. than they actually merited. So, Benkler did this study um, – with his co-authors and the cover, apparently a lot of the coverage about Trump was about the issues, but the coverage about Hillary Clinton was about the investigations and about the emails. Mm. So I remember sitting on a uh, sitting in the audience when Benkler said to a lot of the U.S. journalists over well over a year ago, "You were basically hacked," and um, they didn't understand what he was saying or or find it. Convincing. So, well, they would say uh, that you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't, yep. right? Right. So if that's we, right. Which is, you know, there's like a lot of empathy for that yep. point of view, right? Absolutely. So how do you cover? How do you? It how do you? How do you deal with a problem like uh, Trump, yeah. and and stay true to what the ideals of journalism? Uh, or do we have to change the ideals of journalism? That's absolutely right. And I also, I just also want to add that in a time of exhaustion, underfunding, lack of bodies, it's just too easy to sort of 
get stuff on, you know, up online and then realizing later that you've been played or you've reported something that maybe didn't need to didn't need as much space. So I I don't want to criticize um, no. the media, but I think I think we're in a really tough tough situation, as you say. What do you think of uh, ideas like the correspondent, uh, which I, the correspondent, which is I I think about to launch in the U.S. Uh, thanks to Jay Rosen, um, God bless him. Uh, this idea that. Well, they, they're very uh, explicit about it. The, the idea of news, the way news is reported, it, it creates sort of anxiety and, and dysfunction and is not actually important anyway. And the, what we really should be doing is sort of tapping into what people really want to know about and giving them a, and helping them become reporters and a super server that. Is that a model that appeals to you in any way? Oh, absolutely. And I guess I have a couple thoughts. One is that... You know, every 10, 20 years, somebody comes along with an idea like this. And sometimes it's we, – we've talked about some of these attempts in our report Bridging the Gap, which mm. is about media attempts um, to build trust. And very often uh, journalists will come along and say, you know, we don't need to cover all those murders. Let's do sort of slow news. Let's think about whether it really matters. And what often happens with those, everyone says they like the idea, but they don't actually – pay for it or watch it. You know, the old sort of eat your yeah. eat your eat spinach. Your yeah, yeah. yeah. Eat, your, eat your kale. But I still think it's great to try them. And I would also note that their idea of subscription funding is certainly something that we saw in many places around the world because it's so difficult now to get advertising revenue. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the sort of media entrepreneurs and the startups are really hoping for subscription revenue. I think it's easier said and done in a prosperous country like the Netherlands or like Germany than it is in Cameroon, for example. But absolutely, I I salute anyone that tries something new and and believes in bringing quality information Mm. to the world. Do you think uh, there is, this is going to sound crazy, but do you think there is a panacea out there that we haven't stumbled on yet? It's like looking for the black cat in the coal shed in a way, but. Yeah, no, I don't. Maybe I'm old and boring, but I'm not sure. I'm going to go neither on those. Well, thank you. Thank you. You I'm not sure that I believe in like huge, bold, innovative vision. I think that what I believe in, in many cases, is sort of sticking to your knitting. Mm. And so I I think that the journalists who are doing that are sort of on the coal face, producing Mm -hmm. good information, taking risks, like the women from Rappler, for example, and the men in the Philippines, you know, are just so Mm. brave. So I, 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 I hope that um, sticking to your knitting will at least provide a voice for some and along with clearly like any innovation on distribution would be good. But I'm not sure that there's going to be some magic solution to any of these problems. Okay. Well, I think you and I are going to work on the demand side and that <laughs> might be part of the solution. Excellent. I okay. like that. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. And, and that's it from the Fourth Estate. And I'd like to – Again, thank my very special guest tonight, Anya Schiffrin from Columbia and and the book on global investigative journalism. Go and buy it. It's a great book. <laughs> and and the author, co-author of this a new report on startups around the world called Publishing for Peanuts, which uh, is easily found and hopefully will be on the Center for Media Transitions website too in the very near future. So thank you, Anya. Thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. 
And um, and thank you, everybody. Make sure you've subscribed to The Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app uh, so you can hear us talk media politics and a few other things in between at will. Uh, we'll be back very soon. Uh, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on uh, Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks once again to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.